just as a quick review of what we've covered in this introductory series, The First Coming of King Jesus, and I think you'll see a theme if we put it all in big picture perspective like this. We've looked at the kingdom of the king, the ministry of the king, the genealogy of the king, the birth of the king, the worship of the king, the prophecy of the king, the hatred of the king, the upbringing of the king, the forerunner of the king, the message of the king, the coronation of the king, and last night we looked at the victory of the king. And this morning in Matthew four twelve through 17, we're going to look at the light of the king. I think you see what the theme of Matthew 1 through 4 is. It is the king. And if you haven't done so already, you can turn to Matthew 4, 12 through 17. And I'm delighted to say that this particular account heavily references one of the great classic Christmas passages we often enjoy this time of the year, and that is Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll get there shortly. But let's begin Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee. This is speaking of John the Baptist and his ministry had come to an abrupt ending when he was arrested and he was imprisoned. Matthew chapter 14 recalls the events that had led to the arrest of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch. He was the regional Roman ruler. John the Baptist had spoken bluntly against Herod's wife, Herodias, because she had openly divorced Herod's half-brother, Philip, in order to marry Herod Antipas. What was John the Baptist doing? He was pointing out that this is not kingdom-worthy behavior. This is not kingdom-worthy conduct because that's what John the Baptist was doing. He was calling everyone to repent all the way up to world leaders. Herod kept John imprisoned, in fact, in a uh, fortress in which uh, John could be summoned very quickly to speak to Herod because Mark's gospel records that Herod had an interesting relationship with John. There was a, there was a mixture of, of fascination with John. He liked to listen to him. He liked to bring him out of his cell and, and hear what he had to say. But there was also a, a great fear Herod knew that John the Baptist was a holy man and he, he feared him. He feared the repercussions of treating him badly. Well, you recall the story. John the Baptist was openly condemning Herodias. So at a banquet with many guests, Herod's wife, Herodias, manufactured an opportunity to force Herod to give her whatever she wanted through his stepdaughter, her daughter, Salome. And the request was made. They wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And in many ways, John's death prefigured the death of Christ. That As John died for proclaiming the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven, which he preached so faithfully, so Jesus would die so that many could enter into that kingdom. And so now Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 records the original arrest of John. That was the moment that Jesus took to depart first to Nazareth and then to Capernaum. Capernaum is a, a seaside town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, as we've seen many times in the Gospel of Matthew already, we, we see Jesus being proven to be the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament says 
about the coming of Messiah. And, and we're given the reason here now that Jesus has come to Capernaum, the major site of, of much of his ministry. Verse 14, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now this is a a quote, a reference, a citation from Isaiah chapter 9, which is really one of the most celebrated prophetic messianic passages in all the Old Testament, and we often contemplate and read this passage at Christmas time. The best way, I think, to explain the significance of Jesus fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9 is to spend our time seeing what Matthew was referring to, a passage that would be very, very familiar to a Jew reading Matthew's gospel. So we're going to transition for a bit and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is an epic prophecy that spans not only the the six-decade career of Isaiah, but contains prophecies that literally take humanity all the way to the end of redemptive history. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 concern a situation that the southern kingdom of Judah is in in the 8th century B.C. or so. King Ahaz has refused to come to true saving faith in God. He's refused God's gracious offer to give any sign that he might ask for. And because of Ahaz's disobedience and the continued covenant unfaithfulness of the southern kingdom of Judah and all the people, the time of great darkness is coming. First at the hands of the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and finally the greatest darkness of all, God would be silent for 400 years. In fact, the end of chapter 8 literally leaves the reader in darkness. Chapter 8, verse 22 Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. But then chapter 9 begins with a little two-letter Hebrew conjunction, a connecting word that says something new is about to happen, something something glorious. And it's like the darkness is, is suddenly flooded with light and flooded with hope, and the hope is in Messiah. Now, the seven verses we're going to look at in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, they have kind of a a surprise in them, a twist. And in fact, we might say that the verses are arranged somewhat musically. What do I mean by that? There's a musical notation, an Italian notation called Forte Piano Crescendo. And if you're a musician, you're familiar with those terms. This is Italian for really loud, get soft, and then get louder again. Really loud, get soft, and get louder again. A a note is hit loudly, and then it gets soft, and then it builds up again to finally a glorious ending. And our our text is set up in the same way. It's set up as very much a high-point answer to the growing darkness of chapters 6, 7, and 8, that Messiah is coming, the Lord is coming to save, He's coming to rescue, He's coming to deliver. So we're going to organize our thoughts the way the text does. We'll look at the forte, the loud. We'll look at the piano, soft. And then we'll look at the crescendo, the growing louder. The forte, piano, crescendo of the coming of Christ. And the text starts big. It starts with the forte. 
Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And you already recognize this from Matthew 4. For the first six verses, Isaiah will write roughly in the English equivalent of past tense or present tense, kind of going back and forth, even though none of this has happened yet. And this way of writing serves a couple of purposes. First of all, this is what theologians call a prophetic perfect. Writing prophecy in the past or in the present tense to confirm the certainty of it happening, that the fulfillment is going to be accomplished. And the second purpose for this style of writing is that future readers now after this event will be able to look back and see the accuracy, the precision, the certainty of the prophecy from their vantage point in time. So it it serves the original reader and it serves future readers all at the same time. And so Isaiah writes, in earlier times, even though it hadn't happened yet, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, treated them with contempt. Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes of Israel, they're situated in the northernmost part of Israel. They, they were at the very top of the map, so to speak. And so they were always in the most danger. They were always the most susceptible to foreign influence. And if you read through the history of Israel, it's always those northern tribes that get hit first with idolatry and with bad influences. They were the very first to suffer when Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria attacked Israel, the northern kingdom, first in 735 B.C., then in 732 B.C., and 2 Kings 15 records this. They were the first to be occupied by the Assyrians as a result of their rebellion and their sin. Now, Isaiah 9 uses a term that didn't really come into popularity until the New Testament times, but prophetically, it calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. And we read through the Gospels, you hear about Galilee all the time, the Sea of Galilee and Jesus being in Galilee, Jesus being raised in Galilee. Now this was home to many Gentiles and even in the days of Jesus, you recall that Nazareth of Galilee where Jesus was raised had a terrible reputation. Even Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is important because this is where Jesus would grow up. He would begin his ministry in Galilee at the city of Cana, at the wedding of Cana. Verse 2 says that the people who walk in darkness, there's spiritual darkness, there's, there's the hopelessness of a nation that would never be what it once was. It would never return to its, its former glory, at least according to those who were living in that hopeless time. The Jews in Galilee living among the Gentiles, the the purity of the nation just mixed up and seeming to be lost forever. And God not speaking to them for 400 years. The the days of glory were long gone. There's a sense of suddenness, the, the forte crashing in particularly on Galilee, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali and to, to Israel in general. And the next three verses draw on imagery all the way going back to the book of Judges to illustrate this unexpectedness, this abruptness of the change in fortune. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest 
as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster, as at the battle of Midian. And there's the reference to the book of Judges. In Judges 7, Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites, but God is going to raise up Gideon to defeat them. Gideon took 32,000 troops with him, but God was going to defeat Midian on the basis of his strength, not on Israel's strength. And so you recall that, that God reduced Gideon's forces to 300 men. Gideon and his men came to the Midianite camp in the middle of the night. They did not sharpen their swords. They did not get out their spears. They did not ready their shields. They did the strangest thing. God divided them into three companies of 100 men, each armed with a torch, a jar, and a trumpet. They had a torch in one hand with a jar covering it so it's still lit and yet darkened, and a trumpet in the other hand. They surrounded the camp. They blew the trumpets. They broke the jars. And so the night was, was shattered with this sudden noise of, of the jars breaking apart and 300 loud trumpets. And, and the camp suddenly illuminated by 300 bright torches. And the Midianites are so confused by the power of God, they started killing each other. And those who finally ran away were hunted down by the 300. And by the way, Whose land was saved from the Midianites by this sudden burst of light? Gideon defeated the Midianites who had occupied the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Same place. So in verse 2, we have the the suddenness of light being shown. Verse 4, the sudden breaking of the yoke of burden. The yoke that a farmer puts on oxen to make them do his bidding. The staff for the shoulder used to carry large burdens for your master. The rod of his oppressor. The stick laid to the back of the slave. And they're freed from all of that. In Gideon's day, Israel was oppressed in that way by the Midianites In Isaiah's day and beyond, Israel was oppressed by the weight of their own sin, the weight of their own rebellion, the weight of their own rejection of Messiah, their their covenant disloyalty to God. But Messiah's coming is going to demolish the darkness and and shine brilliant light on the nation. And so in verse 3, the nation would experience a multiplication, a, a resurgence of hope. And you have these amazing illustrations given. It's like the joy of a tremendous harvest. It's like the joy of conquering the great enemy and dividing the spoil of battle. That victory was coming. And in fact, the, the forte gets even louder. It's still this loud beginning point in verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle... And cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. In the near term, in Isaiah's day, although Assyria would invade and occupy eventually, in the days of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, God would personally come as the angel of the Lord and kill 185,000 invading Assyrian troops. Both Isaiah and 2 Kings tell us that the city of Jerusalem the next day was surrounded with dead bodies of the Assyrians. What do you do with them and with their clothes? You burn them. They're fuel for the fire. And what was shaping up to be a massive battle turned instantly to peace when God intervened. There was quiet. There was peace. 
And so in verses 1 through 5, you have this loud note, Messiah is coming. He'll bring the light of salvation in suddenness and in glory. He'll bring relief from sorrow, relief from grief, and bring with Him the grace of God. But as we read through verses 3 through 5, they, they seem to indicate a great military victory. This is something big. This is something loud. This is something momentous. And these verses build the tension with the question, what is the great light coming to save Israel? Or the better question might be, who is the great light coming to save Israel? And you expect, because of this military language, you expect the conquering Messiah riding in to save the day. You expect a great warrior. You expect blood on his sword. You expect this forte note. And how will Messiah ride in to save the day? The forte goes to piano. Soft, quiet, subdued. In verse 6, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. This isn't a conquering warrior. This is a baby. This is a huge surprise. Verses 2 through 5 sound like a conquering warrior is coming. And then all of a sudden, for a child will be born to us. And these two short statements, the, the prophecy of the birth of Messiah Jesus, they're, they're loaded with potential. They're loaded with importance. There's a contrast expressed in the coming of one person. First, a child will be born. This is the full humanity of the Messiah who comes. He's born. This is the beginning of something. Messiah would come to earth fully human. But the other part, a son is given. That's the contrast. The eternally God, son of God, would come to earth in an amazing, mysterious joining of God and man. Something that's given implies that it already existed. Already we have the hypostatic union of Christ, the God-man. He is man, a child to be born to us. He is God, a son given to us from heaven. In fact, we get a hint of this back in chapter 4. You might take a moment and look with me at chapter 4, verse 2. Just a couple of pages back. Chapter 4, verse 2 gives exactly the same message. The child is born, the son is given, fully human, fully God. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the honor of those of Israel who escape. The branch of Yahweh and the fruit of the earth, or the fruit of the land. Both of those metaphors speak of Messiah. They both speak of Christ. The branch, this is a messianic title pointing to his family tree that he's from God. And then in Isaiah 11, we find out in in Jeremiah 23 that he's also the branch from David. He's the branch from God. He's the branch from David. He is the God-man. And he is also the fruit of the earth or the fruit of the land. This is parallel to the branch. This is his human origin in the same way Isaiah 53, 2 says he is the root out of dry ground. The the point here is, is that it shows that Christ comes from heaven and Christ comes from earth. The hypostatic union, the God-man nature of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 4, and now with the knowledge that a son is born in chapter 9, the full humanity 
of Christ, a son is given the coming down of the full deity of God himself. With further revelation in scripture, this makes sense to us. Our Lord would be the child of Mary, truly a human being, and at the same time, truly the son of God. And just to be very, very clear, when Christ came to earth, he did not subtract deity from himself in order to be human. He added human nature to himself. It's what theologians call addition by subtraction. He came to earth as a man with a human body, a human mind, human, necess- human emotions. It was important, it was needful for Messiah to be both God and man. Jesus would be our representative. He would perfectly obey God where we have failed him. Jesus lived the perfect human life that we couldn't live because of our sin. Jesus would be the perfect substitute sacrifice for the wages of sin due to us because only a sinless sacrifice could fully pay the ransom for my sin and for yours. Jesus would be the perfect mediator between mankind and God, the perfect bridge to make the case for our salvation. He represents God. He represents humanity. Jesus would fulfill God's original purpose for mankind to rule the earth. He would take that to perfection. Jesus lived a life that's a perfect example for us to follow. That to be more like Christ, we're to be imitators of Christ. Jesus comes as the prototype of a redeemed body. A a body that has died and been raised and will live forever. And because he lives, all who believe on him will live. He can be perfectly sympathetic to us as our glorious high priest, as our representative before God, because there's no trial or trouble that we undergo that he's not intimately familiar with as a fellow human being. Jesus will be a man forever. He will forever bridge the gap between God and redeemed men. His divine nature permanently joined to his human nature. And he lives forever, not just as the second person of the triune God, but he lives forever as Jesus. Sweetest name I know. The man whose mother is Mary and who is the human savior of the world. I don't know if we can really comprehend this, but if you are in Christ, you will enjoy Jesus as our connection to God Himself for all time. There's a growing movement today to say that Jesus gave up His humanity when He went to heaven and that He is now in spirit form again. That destroys the very essence of the gospel. The fact is, is that at this moment, Jesus, the God-man, is in a perfect, glorified human body And he is somebody you will meet face to face someday. And he will look like you. And when the forte of verses 1 through 5 in chapter 9 lead us to expect a conquering hero. And the the piano of verse 6 surprises us with the birth of a baby, an infant. What's exciting about a forte piano crescendo is that it has a sense of expectation. Crescendo is coming. Something is happening. And now the crescendo begins. The the getting louder and louder. When Jesus came as a baby, he grew, he ministered, he called disciples to himself. And these, these disciples fully expected Jesus to immediately break the yoke of burden and the staff of slavery and the rod of oppression to set up his kingdom on earth imminently. This is why the disciples were always arguing about who got to be first in the kingdom. 
None of them argued about who got to die for Jesus first. When they didn't fully understand until later that the first enemy Christ had to conquer was sin and death. Eventually, after the resurrection of Christ and after his ascension, they understood that Jesus had to die a cruel death on a cross to pave the way for him to save his people, to make them holy, to be able to forever abide with him in the presence of holy God. Then Jesus ascended into heaven to advocate on our behalf as he began building his church on earth as he's been doing for the past 2,000 years by sending the Holy Spirit in his place and the crescendo right now, at this moment, it's almost imperceptible. A, a really skilled orchestra, a really skilled band, they can, they can draw out a crescendo so it's almost imperceptible. And then, right at the very end, just trumpet out this loud, loud, uh, climactic moment. Right now, the, the crescendo is imperceptible, isn't it? Kingdom citizens are added to the kingdom of Christ day by day on planet Earth, dying and quietly going to heaven to be added to the number of the growing army of Christ. And then when Christ returns, when He restores His beloved Israel, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, verse 6 continues, and the government will rest on His shoulders and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. What a crescendo. The government will be on his shoulder. You know what's interesting? This is the only time in all of the Old Testament that that phrase is used. And it's only of Messiah. The government on his shoulder. Literally the rule or the dominion. The all-powerful nature. It will be on him and him alone. And now this helps us understand the fuller fulfillment of verses 2 through 5. We said earlier, it, it sounds like a great battle. The ultimate fulfillment of verses 2 through 5. Look at it again with me. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Jesus himself said that when he returns, everybody will see him. The book of Revelation says every eye shall behold him. Those who live in in the land in the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now I want you to picture and think about being a a recently converted Jew, a recently converted Gentile. You have faith in Christ. Your fellow believers have been dying left and right under the tyrannical rule of Antichrist. The world is just going down. There's judgments raining down from God. The, The earth is literally falling apart. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. Society is crumbling. And you look and you see the coming of Jesus Christ what are you going to do are you going to go oh that's nice no this is rejoicing you make great their gladness in the verse 4 you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their taskmaster I don't know about you but it's hard sometimes to watch the news and to try to find one leader somewhere in the world who is worthy of leading. There just are hardly any at all. 
What a glorious day it's going to be when all the Christians are dancing around going, Jesus is in charge now. What a glorious day. And in verse 5, for every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. The book of Ezekiel says it will take months to burn the bodies of the wicked that Jesus Christ will kill when he returns. This is what Isaiah meant in chapter 2, verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And we see here that his name is called and this is classic Christmas stuff here. The four descriptions of Messiah on earth, his name is called Wonderful Counselor. Literally in Hebrew, a wonder of a counselor. Wonderful doesn't just mean pleasant and nice. It means out of the ordinary. It means supernatural. It means something spectacular. That he will require no one to give him advice on how to rule. Every world leader, every governing leader has a ton of advisors so that they can try to figure out what to do. Jesus needs no advisors. He'll be like King Solomon who had asked the Lord for great wisdom in 1 Kings 3.28. It says that the people of Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. In fact, Jesus in John 7.14 and 15 is spoken of, but when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned, not having been educated? Well, try being the eternal Son of God who knows everything. He's the wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. This emphasizes his deity. It emphasizes his power. Psalm 24, 8 says, Who is this King of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle? And when Christ returns, Zechariah 14, 12 records that he, this will be the plague with which Yahweh will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And He is the everlasting Father that speaks of the eternal nature of Messiah. Jesus said that if you have seen Him, you have seen God the Father. Now, Father here is not to confuse us with Jesus as being God the Father, but it speaks of His care and His love for humanity as a glorious, benevolent ruler, the ruler of all the rulers Psalm 68.5 says that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows in his holy habitation that when God in the form of man is ruling on this earth, he'll protect all that are weak. Psalm 103.13, as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. And then perhaps the one we associate with Christmas the most, he is the prince of peace. The prince who rules in peace and because of his rule there is peace. His rule will bring a cessation of war, wholeness and health to society. He'll rule in justice and righteousness. Evil will not be tolerated for one second. Verse 7 says that he will sit on the throne of his father David. 
Only, other, only one other king has sat upon David's throne over a united Israel and truly ruling in peace. In fact, his name means peace. And that was, of course, King Solomon. But now the true Prince of Peace is seated on the throne that has been destined for him in prophecy. Now, there's an interesting phrase here. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. How is it that the increase of his dominion, of his government, will will never cease? That his justice and his righteousness will establish his kingdom forever? Here's the real crescendo. Think about the entirety of the ministry of Christ from the time that we know and all the way going into the future. How did the ministry of Christ, as it were, start? Well, there's a few shepherds and a couple of wise men. That's where it started. During his ministry, he gained a few more worshipers. And and I know the crowds of tens of thousands followed him, but almost all of them fell away. At the time of his ascension into heaven, in all of the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the only ones fully devoted to Christ numbered 120. That was it. In Galilee, to the north, according to 1 Corinthians 15, there were about 500 On the day of Pentecost, at the bringing of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 were added. The book of Acts says that daily God added to their number. Then, beginning in Acts chapter 8, you have this great dispersion of Christian Jews, and they begin to spread the gospel wherever they are. Christ promised to build His church and has been adding kingdom citizens to it ever since, stocking the glorious halls of heaven with believers for the past 20 centuries. Someday Christ will resurrect all believers in glorious resurrection bodies. His program to restore His beloved nation of Israel will kick into high gear during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 19 says that Jesus will gather all the resurrected saints in heaven and He's pictured symbolically as wearing the crowns of every single nation on earth on His own head. This is the certainty of His coming earthly rule. And in fact, on two different places on him is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Christ will return to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, literally five miles from the place he was born. And the Lord will return to earth. And Zechariah 14.9 says that on that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's a crescendo. From a couple of wise men and a few shepherds to the Lord being king over all the earth. And his return will be marked by great bloodshed when he conquers all his enemies. Why? Verse 7 says, The zeal, literally the heated jealousy of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Yahweh of hosts means God who commands the armies. He'll be jealous for his people Israel, jealous for the world which he made, and now he's taking it back with us right behind him. I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty important to me to be on the right side when all that happens. There's only one hope for salvation from sin, and that is to be on the right side when you appear before God. And of course, the obvious question is, how do I get to the right side? We didn't finish our text in Matthew 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. The last verse in our Matthew 4 text, the very first recorded preaching of Jesus Christ on earth. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It means change your loyalty from being loyal to your sin to being loyal to Christ. Change your loyalty from loving your sinfulness to turning now to God and turning to Christ. I'd like to finish up our time by showing you something that the theme that we have this morning is the light of the king. And we see this here in Isaiah 9, the darkness being turned to light. But when you get to the New Testament, the theme of darkness and light now is just everywhere. That all people are either in the darkness of sin or in the, they're in the light of salvation to Christ, in Christ. There's, there's no in between. All people are categorized that way. Our text this morning, Matthew 4, 16, the people who were in, sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. In Luke 1, 79, Christ came to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Speaking of Christ, John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. John three nineteen. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. In John twelve thirty five. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Acts 26 17 and 18, a resurrected, ascended, glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul at Paul's conversion. That Jesus is rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. In Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen family a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And of course, gloriously, 1 John 1, 5, and this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. You see that theme suddenly exploding? That's a crescendo. That is a crescendo. And because Christ and Christ alone is the light of the world, the light shining in the darkness, because He is the wonderful Counselor, because He is the mighty God, because He is the everlasting Father, because He is the Prince of Peace, to all who would follow after Him, He'll give you His Spirit. He'll make you one of His followers. And this morning, that's the good news. For a child will be born to us and a son is given to us. And that's why we can say with greater joy than anyone, Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Our Father, it truly is a Merry Christmas.
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and he has been, and he has come, and he is coming again. And Lord, we we thank you and praise you that you have brought us from the spiritual darkness into the light. We didn't even know we were in the darkness. We didn't know there was a light. We didn't know that there was a problem. We didn't know that our eyes were closed to the truth. We didn't know that our ears were shut to your word. We didn't know that our hearts were darkened and cold. We didn't know that our minds were unable to comprehend the Son of God. But in your graciousness, you have shown the light of truth into our hearts. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We bless you that God, who had light shine out of the darkness, has had the light of Jesus Christ shine in us. And for all who are now beginning to suspect that they are in the darkness and beginning to to sense that they have not known the light of Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would grasp a hold of this truth and by the power of the Spirit they would come to the light and that they would be renewed in their newfound faith and that they would grasp the cross the means by which the Lord Jesus Christ has brought many into His kingdom. The means by which He has shattered the yoke of burden, the staff on our shoulders and the rod of the oppressor of sin. We thank you for this Christmas morning. We thank you that as Christians, we more than all peoples can wish one another a Merry Christmas for a child has come to us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name.